And there's this great Gandhi quote that you may have heard. And I'm paraphrasing, but it's, I'm too busy to meditate today. So I'm going to meditate for two hours instead of one hour. Um, and I say, don't worry, I'm not going to make you meditate for even one hour. But the fact is the meditation makes you more efficient. Um, it's a high performance tool. There's another whole concept of the benefits in addition to stress reduction, in addition to health benefits, and in addition to any spiritual stuff, there's a whole high performance aspect to it. Um, that allows you to be a more creative, you know, more creative and a better problem solver and better interpersonal skills and more efficient. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to episode 18 of Contemplate This, conversations on contemplation and compassion. I'm your host, Dr. Tom Bushlack, and this interview is with Dr. Jill Weiner. I first met Jill through the collaborative work that I'm doing with my employer, SSM Health, and Dr. Jennifer Wessels, a vice president in our medical group who is also in charge of our physician wellness program. We're going to have Dr. Weiner come out and do some work with us. And I connected with her and saw her work and immediately wanted to have her on the show. And she agreed, thankfully. So after practicing internal medicine for 10 years, Jill was introduced to a form of Vedic meditation from India, right at a time when she was struggling with her own stress and burnout as a physician. By her own account, she was crying every day and admits to being a pretty hardcore skeptic about how meditation could help. But then she tells this story about a chance encounter with some hippies in a pool and a horse at a spa in Arizona how this led to to her finding a teacher and eventually becoming a teacher herself. And yes, you heard me correctly, a couple of hippies and a horse. You're not going to want to miss her story. Now Jill teaches what she calls conscious health meditation full-time, primarily to physicians and other healthcare workers. You can find links to Dr. Jill Weiner's website and programs on the show notes page, which is at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode 18. That's the word episode 18 with no spaces. On that note, I do want to mention that my website, along with a brand new website coming at centeringforwisdom.com, are undergoing a total reconstruction and rebuild and should be rolled out in the next few months. All the same free content and like this podcast will still be there and it'll be easier to find and share with others. Most importantly, getting me out of the web hosting and development work means that I can spend more time creating more content like the podcast and blog posts and guided meditations. Finally, any help you can provide by writing reviews wherever you download your podcast, sharing this with friends on social media or word of mouth, or by making a secure free will donation on the show notes page. Any of that helps me to keep cranking out more good stuff. So thanks to all who listen and who have provided that support. Now let's get right into my interview with Dr. Jill Weiner. So I am here with Dr. Jill Weiner, and welcome to Contemplate This. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Good. All right, well, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about who you are, where you are, what you do, and then we'll we'll go backwards from there. Awesome. Okay. So uh, I'll give you the short version. And so I um, 
I, I think the part of my story that people find to be the most unusual and or interesting is that I am a board certified internal medicine specialist. I practiced hospital medicine for 10 years in Chicago and um, learned how to meditate in the Vedic meditation tradition in 2011 uh, when I was really profoundly, horribly burnt out. And it was a total game changer for me and not only made me stop being burnt out, but made my life better in so many other ways that I didn't think uh, was possible. And so I eventually decided to become teacher in that tradition, uh, which took a couple of years of prep work and it's three months of teacher training in India and mm-hmm. decided to go to India for my teacher training. Also had the chance to move to China, um, before that. So I moved to China. That's why I left my job was to move to China. Oh, I, I didn't catch that part on your website. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It's, it, it, it was sort of a, a personal detour. Um, and <laughs> ended up being interestingly, the thing that got me out of medicine, um, so I went to China, then I went to India for my teacher training, and then eventually, um, for, straight from India, came back here to Atlanta, which is where I grew up. And I hadn't been here since graduating medical school at Emory, and decided while I was on my teacher training um, that I that I wanted to because I knew the benefits of this technique and, and how easy it is, and how it is so much more preventative um, in terms of managing stress and and the complications of stress. I just felt like this is my calling. I want to bring this to healthcare professionals, um, to, to everybody, of course. You know, you come out of your training and you're like, I want to change the world and teach everyone. And it's gone through like different different phases of, of um, what what types of people I teach. But at this point now, it's mainly healthcare professionals. They've, they found their way to me and I found my way to them. So, um, so yeah, so that's what I do. I, I'm, I uh, have a little part-time job that helps me um, – Still in my income, but uh, for the most part, I am teaching meditation and other stress reduction techniques to healthcare professionals, and um, it's pretty incredible. It's a, it's like a completely different mindset in every way than than life as a doctor. So it's been it's been all the emotions <laughs> all tied into one. Yeah, and you get to observe them from the still point in your practice, right? <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> exactly. It's interesting, like when meditation is your job rather than the thing that you do to help you burn off stress, it right. sometimes feel like, okay, what's my outlet? Um and obviously the meditation, I still do it and it still helps me, but getting away from that component, not that I ever really need to get away from it, but it, it is how do you deal with stress that's related to teaching meditation? It's just sort of a funny concept. That is interesting. I hadn't quite thought about it before, although I can relate in some ways. <laughs> yeah. And there's like some sort of pressure also that I'm supposed to be perfect. And so I think for a long time, it was hard for me to acknowledge that I have a lot of answers for other people. Like I can help a lot of other people with their things. I'm still a human being and I still need support. Mm, um, yeah. Like nothing makes you perfect. There's no one answer to, to everything. Yeah. So, and I do think that can be a trap when you're trying to teach. Uh, that and but what I've found and I don't know if this resonates with you is that I have to consciously remind myself uh, not to sort of hide behind like my intellect um, because I've done a lot of research and so when I get nervous I'll go to the data (laughs) but but what I've actually found is that when I really feel like I connect with either an individual or with a group that I'm working with or teaching uh, that happens because I'm vulnerable 
because I talk about my struggles and I talk about how like my practice, my contemplative practice doesn't make me perfect. Just gives me another tool to deal with being human. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I, you know, and, and, and when I finally was like, Hey, I'm struggling. I, there were a few, <clears throat> excuse me, a few things uh, going on within my own meditation community that were pretty uh, upsetting for me. And so dealing with that kind of on my own, trying to process that, but not feeling like I could share that with anyone was really, really hard on me. And I finally started to share that with people. Everyone said, no one, none of us expect you to be perfect. That's the pressure you're putting on yourself. You're just teaching people, you know, they don't, they, because to me, it was like, this meditation practice is everything. And I think for them, they're like, she's teaching people a way to manage their stress. So a lot of that pressure is internal. Yes. And yeah. I, the more I embrace my hum- humanity, I think, the, like you're saying, the more people relate to me and, and want to learn from me. Yeah, and actually benefit more from your teaching, probably. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, well, I want to put a bookmark in that internal pressure, because that's a big one. But I want to back up, because you just were like, well, I was practicing internal medicine. So you, you went through med school, which is stressful. You were practicing in a hospital that was stressful. You talked yeah. about experiencing some burnout. Yeah. And then you're like, and then I learned Vedic meditation. So Walk us through that. Who, how did you get introduced to the practice? Did you have a, a primary teacher? And then maybe explain what Vedic meditation is. Even like I have a certain conception of what I think that might mean, but explain sure. that tradition a little bit. So I was, if you had asked, so I learned in October of 2011, if you had asked anyone before that, who was the least likely person you know to become a consistent meditator and or meditation teacher, they would say Jill Weir. Like I was not spiritual. I was very skeptical and very type A and very, I don't want to even say evidence driven because it's not like I was out there doing research about meditation and like looking for any of it. I just didn't care all that much. I did yoga. It wasn't even on your radar. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, I think a nice compassionate person, but I certainly wasn't like looking for a spiritual practice. Um, so then I guess two things happened. Um, I went to a spa in Arizona with two of my friends from med school and this was already when the burnout had started. And when I was there, they had a, um, I, I was, I love this story. So I was swimming in the pool. My, both of my friends were like off getting spa treatments or whatever. This is Miraval spa, which is amazing. It's actually where I'm my doing my first meditation retreat for women physicians. That's just me hosting it. And I'm doing it there at that spa. Cause that's like for me, the birthplace of my whole meditation journey. So I was in the pool with these hippies and they're from Seattle and they were newlyweds and they were having their, I don't understand how they ended up there. They eloped and that's where they ended up for their honeymoon. But I just remember them being all tattooed and pierced and super nice. And I was talking to them in the pool by myself. And they said, there's this amazing program you have to go on uh, with, about the horses. And I was like, I don't do stuff like that. Like, I think I said that to them six times. That's just not my jam. And they said, no, you really, really, really have to go. And I said, fine, I'll go. I asked my friends. They didn't want to go with me. And I went. And this program totally blew my mind. It, it, it was my first realization or awareness that there's something else to this world that I am not perceiving. Mm. Maybe been there all the time. But holy crap. You know, I don't need to go into the details of the program. So that's, not necessarily, that's not necessarily important. But I was able to visualize and and experience in a very tactile way the benefits of what the mind can do. And so um, that was awesome. And I think that was when my search started because I was unhappy. I felt better 
got back home and then I was burned oh, out yeah. again. I didn't mean to cut you off, but did, you said it was a program with horses. Did I hear you correctly? Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure because you it's said it quickly. Horse. Yeah. It's not about the horse or something. I think it's it's a program designed at Miraval, but it does stuff with horses like using your intentionality and you have to be present with them and you can change their behavior just by the way you think. Oh, okay. Um, so I got back to Chicago. I got burned out again like six days later because nothing in me had actually changed. I just... Sure. Just but nothing, I didn't have any coping skills. And at that point I was like, I'm open to anything. I, there was a woman who was in my that horse program group who, who was like did goddess ceremonies and channeled goddesses. And in my mind, I was like, that's crazy. But I, I was like, and she happened to live in Chicago. So I was like, yeah, I'll come do a psychic reading with you and come to your full moon ceremony. Absolutely. So at that point I was like, there was like a four week period where I was like, sure bring it on. I'll do, I'll do all these things. And in that four week period, I uh, met someone who told me they meditated twice a day. And I said, that sounds really awesome. Tell me all the details. And they said, well, my teacher's coming to town. Uh, you should come hear him speak. He's coming to town in two days, actually. And so I went to go hear him speak as a man from LA named Light Watkins, um, who's become quite like a sort of celebrity meditation teacher. Very, He's gotten to be quite well known. He's published a couple books, but so he taught me to meditate in 2011. So backing that up a day, I went to go hear him speak, ready to just completely write him off because I thought I knew everything because you know, I'm a doctor and I know everything. Right. And everything he said just totally resonated. And I felt like, oh, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. I can't prove him wrong. I need, and he's talking about this mantra and if you give you the mantra, then you use it and you get to this, this, this restful state and then everything in your life gets better. And I was like, I want the mantra so bad. Like, can we start now? Can we start five minutes ago? And it's expensive. The, 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 the technique that I teach is expensive. It was a, a week salary. So it's sliding scale, but the way he did it, mine, mine is a little bit different now, but my pricing, but so I paid a week salary to this strange mm. man that I did not know. I didn't even Google him before I went. I just like, showed up at this class, but I just knew it was something I had to do. Um, and I had events planned every night that week, a photography class. I think the goddess ceremony was actually supposed to be that week. I canceled all of them and took the class. And within a day or two, I was meditating 20 minutes twice a day, effortlessly having actual experiences that. I was like, what is happening? I'm skeptical, Jill. I'm the type A doctor and I'm meditating and I'm doing it right. And like super quick results, benefits. Uh, I lost my road rage in three weeks. Stopped crying every day, which was the reason I did it. Mm. And then, you know, beyond that, just like a whole universe opened up to me that I didn't know existed. A, a whole way of, of being um, and, and seeing the world. So that is how I got to it, um, kind of by accident. But the circumstances where I met the person who told me about Vedic meditation were also, you know, maybe not for the context of the show, but um, <laughs> also like very much like I'm going to be there, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to sit there. And then I sat there, and then that person showed up. So it was a very, the universe brought it to me because I was ready for it. It, it, yeah. it was cracked open and I, I needed it. So I always say that it came to me rather than me looking for it. I think that's how most people experience it. Also yeah. interesting how you had that sort of initial indescribable uh, experience with the horses. Yeah. Perhaps just 
opened enough of a wedge in your in your shell, if you will, and your defense mechanisms to be like, okay, something else is going on here, and and then there you there you were. Yeah. So when I some people listening might be familiar or might be thinking because what you described sounds a little bit like TM or transcendental meditation, um, a mantra based. And I know I I don't have personal experience with TM, but I know people have talked about it as being rather expensive. So is is it a similar kind of tradition to that? Yeah. So so the TM uh, organization or whatever might might the man who not light, but the man who taught light to be a teacher and who taught light to meditate and who taught me to be a teacher he trained in the TM organization for like 30 years. And then he okay. left the organization, went on his own, started calling it Vedic meditation and then started teaching independently. Okay. So everyone that he has trained is part of the Vedic meditation, but is as far as we know, and as far as other TM students who have come to my classes, they say, yeah, it's the same technique. Um, but I'm not part of any organization or, right. or system in, in that. Okay. Right. Um, so, and, and, you know, people, the, the cost thing is sticky for people, but I can tell you right off the bat, if I had not paid as much as I paid to learn, I would not have taken it seriously. Um, there's this concept of uh, guru dakshina, which is giving something in exchange, giving something of value in exchange for receiving something of value. Um, you think about it like the free gym at your apartment complex that you never use, but then if you pay for an expensive gym, you're going to use it. And I mean, I remember sitting there being like, okay, I'm paying this much money to learn, dividing that by how many hours the course was. And I, but, but the thing is, once you learn, you have that teacher as your teacher for life. Right. And every time you, you can go hear the class as many times as you want. So I was yeah. like, okay, we'll come back in town and then I'll go to the end. And then it's going to be this much per hour. Like that's the way my brain was working at that point to rationalize the amount of money I was spending. So I get it. It, it sounded totally crazy to me. But one of the parts of the story that I love to tell is, that night I got home from that introductory talk and I called my therapist or I texted her and I said, <laughs> I said, you know, Sunday night at like 10 o'clock. And I said, Hey, uh, there's this meditation class and it's a week's salary. Should I do it? And she's like, yes, please do it. So I always joke, if you're calling your therapist on Sunday night to ask them about anything, the answer is yes, you should do it. <laughs> yeah. That's sort of like an intrinsic sign that you should yes take the meditation class. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, so TM, uh, they do a wonderful job teaching people to meditate, uh, uh, and, and the, the technique is something that, that we share. There's, there's been some strife between Vedic and TM that I've kept myself out of. And, uh, I'm, I'm actually at this point, pretty independent from the Vedic meditation. Um, there's not like a formal community or any sort of hierarchy. It's more of a lineage. Yeah. But I call what I teach conscious health meditation. I don't call it Vedic meditation anymore, mainly with my, my healthcare background. But um, I just, I like to be, I still teach the technique the way I was right. taught. So a, a question about that is, so when somebody signs up or, or does the initiation, are they, are they given a, a specific mantra to them? Or is there like a mantra that is used throughout the tradition? There, so there are not six billion mantras. So there are some mantras that some people do have the same mantra. Um, yeah. The mantras that we use are Sanskrit sounds. They're called bija mantras. B i j. Yeah. Seed. Exactly. Nice. Yes. So, I so I I didn't tell you this before, but I have also received an initiation from the 
Himalayan yoga tradition through so through like Swami Rama and Swami Veda Bharati if you're familiar with awesome yeah. awesome okay so you know yeah. well, the mantras and um so it has no meaning for the for the other people listening who are like what a mantra <laughs> yeah feed it has no meaning it, it works based on the way the sound vibrates in your mind um as you think it's silently and so it's not like I'm a strong powerful woman and I'm going to kick ass at my job today it's not even like love peace heart you know it's not it has no meaning and it's just because it's meaningless it's able to um just work based on the way the sound vibrates so um there are not six billion of them um so some students do get different ones but that's one of the things that you learn in the teacher training is how to know which one to give uh each student and yeah. that's privately uh each student gets their own mantra separately with me even if i'm teaching in a group i take them aside into a separate room and do that right and honestly like it it matters and it doesn't matter. But if everyone had the same mantra, if that was like the dirty secret of TM, which it's not, but if that was, it doesn't matter because the mantra kind of integrates into each person in a unique way. So if you think about um, if you and your best friend both went and got the same pair of shoes and you both wore a same, like a size 10 or whatever, and then um, you wore them every single day for the next month because you love them so much and then you go over to their house for dinner and take them off and by accident you put their shoes on at the end of the night they don't feel like your your shoes you know immediately that they're different that's the same way with the mantra it it they are strangely powerful there's the one thing about meditation that i can't explain i can understand and explain the scientific parts between, behind all of it the mantras are the only thing that are are pretty much unexplainable how they work um yeah but they do. And it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that what that the teacher that I received a mantra from uh, said to me that I always find interesting is, you know, you do your formal practice and that's important. Um, but that the, the mantra sort of goes to work when you're not consciously thinking about it, when you're not doing the formal practice. Um, and I think about that in terms of, of any kind of formal practice, the purpose of you talked about it is sitting 20 minutes twice a day. And I find that that's a pretty standard um, commitment for somebody who's living outside of a monastery and going to have a, a career and a life um, yep. and, and across a lot of different traditions. That's pretty, pretty standard. Yeah. Um, but that the purpose of the formal practice is not actually necessarily directly for the experience during the practice, but rather to ground oneself in the experience of the mantra or, or the experience of the practice so that it, it sort of gets ingrained in you throughout the day, even when you're not consciously thinking about it. So for us, there's parts of that that are yes and parts of that that are no. Um, yeah. We don't focus on the mantra. We're not like repeating the mantra over and over again the whole time. Um, and I don't know how, how you do your practice, but we're not... <laughs> I always tell people, I'm not teaching you how to be an awesome meditator. I'm teaching you how to have an awesome life. So we don't judge what's happening in the meditation by those 20 minutes. We judge it by how do you feel right after your meditation? How do you feel in life? So I think in that way, it's very similar. Yeah, I think that's similar to what I was trying to say, but you said it better. <laughs> we, don't, we don't, at least we don't teach it that the mantra is working even when you're not meditating mm. or the mantra gets you to a physiologic state while you're meditating that 
that you're sort of tapping into it's two to five times more restful than sleep, uh, our meditative state that we get to, which is not unique to but other people have access to sure. it. Um, sure. This is a nice way to get there. Um, and you tap into that and that's the source of unlimited, uh, it's two to five times more restful than sleep. They've TM has done some really nice studies on it, but also, you know, love and compassion and energy and creativity and, and it's pure consciousness. That's what you're tapping into. Um, and so once that gets tapped into the more you meditate and the, the more that gets stabilized in your waking state, but it's not like, um, so I think we may, it, it may be two ways to say the same thing, but it's, I, I think, think so it's slightly different maybe. Yeah, no, but I like the way you put it, uh, that it, that, that state becomes more stabilized or it becomes easier to when life does get kind of crazy or stressful, it becomes easier to come back to that as sort of your baseline. Yeah. It's as opposed to the chaotic state. Yeah. And, and, and what, what my students say is like, I want to not be yelling at my kids anymore. And, and what tends to happen with the practice that I teach is not, um, okay, you catch yourself in the moment and then you're like, okay, count to six or come back to source and do whatever. You just don't get to the point where you're yelling at them as often. It yeah. is more of like a preventative rather than a mindfulness type approach. And so I think that you would ask me, what are the, the differences? Um, we, we use as little effort as possible. And, and I don't know the type that you practice. So I can compare it to like mindfulness pretty yeah. well, but I don't know exactly uh, how you use your Bija mantra. Um, we sit comfortably. We sit with our back supported. We're not mm -hmm. doing legs crossed. We're not in lotus position. We don't have our hands in mudras. We don't do any of those things. I'm like showing you mudras, like a like you need to tell you. Well, I can see you, but people listening so can't. Yeah, see that. So it doesn't matter. But I'm just I talk with my hands a lot. Um, so we're always the the whole for me the whole 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 concept is maximize the parasympathetic nervous system. Mm. Stress mode. It's all sympathetic fight or, fight or flight cortisol adrenaline. And until we shift our body chemistry, you can't you can't yell at a stressed body to stop yelling at the kids or yeah. to calm down. You have to shift the, the chemistry um, so that you have more rest, which then gives you, we, we call it adaptation energy. Um, this ability is like your bank account of patience. And so the meditation practice builds up your bank account of patience so that when something happens without even thinking about it, you're just like, here's some of my adaptation energy. And then you go about your day. Um, so because the, the transcendence that, that meditative state is so restful and you're sitting comfortably and you're not, we're not trying to focus or concentrate or clear our minds or anything. So you're really like using as little effort as possible. The only effort you're doing is your, your head is not supported. So you have to hold your head up. <laughs> but other than that, there's no effort at all. And the technique is kind of like daydream. Yeah. So I call it sanctioned daydreaming. And so because you're not using effort, you therefore activate the parasympathetic nervous system a ridiculous amount. And you're using the mantra to get you to this state, this restful state. And that's where all the benefits, that's where they come from. And that's where they get started. Yeah. Well, I always found it helpful that parasympathetic piece, the P uh, alliteration. Oh, that's how I remember that. <laughs> I like that. We always said yeah. like rest and digest or stay in play in, in medical training, but I like peace better. Yeah. And it works because yeah, yeah. then you're like, okay, that's the one I want to turn on <laughs> of yeah. my two. Your body's innate ability to heal itself comes from that. Uh, it's so powerful. It's so incredible. So, um, 
So I think of it in a very, very scientific way. Um, it's just all about chemistry, you know, and, and like, like the chemicals that we make when we meditate versus the chemicals that we make when we're sitting in traffic and trying to control things and, and yelling at people. And those chemicals can feel very different <laughs> depending yeah. on the state that yeah. we're in. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a couple of the terms that you've used. So conscious health meditation, that's something that you you've chosen that term that isn't like a a tradition that you that's were taught or something. Okay. No, that's just me. I, I opened up I had a commercial space uh for like six months. Um it's like a long story, but I never thought <laughs> I wanted a commercial space, but I was it, it happened that, that I, I got one um, and it was very exciting. And I named it conscious health meditation and wellness. Cause I just thought that's what I'm all about. Consciousness, mm -hmm. health, I'm a doctor, et cetera. And then uh, many, many things conspired to end that, that commercial. And it wasn't a financial thing at all. There was actually a yoga studio that moved in next door that played really, really loud music as part of their, their like business model. That's ironic. <laughs> yeah. And so it was, it, the classes were really fun and dynamic and, and I think brought in a, a different crowd of people to yoga that didn't might necessarily have done it because it made it like approachable. But, um, I can meditate in loud music, but I can't really teach meditation. Right. Music. And I had practitioners, you know, renting the space for me part time and they couldn't do their job. So, um, so I ended up, luckily my landlord recognize the issue and let me out of my lease, which was the greatest thing that ever happened to me <laughs> professionally. I think it was really nice. Uh, it was a relief. Um, so then when I decided I didn't want to be, I didn't want to call it Vedic meditation anymore. Conscious health meditation was just kind of the next, it just seemed like a very easy job. Yeah, it works. It's catchy. I just didn't, I was curious if it came from somewhere else. Yeah. Conscious and then, yeah. Well, and yes, as you said before, when you settle down into that state, you're, you are tapping into or settling into a sort of pure consciousness that is related to, but beyond your own consciousness. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to ask you about just in terms of the language that you use is this idea of adaptation energy, which I, I like that language. So can you unpack that a little bit? What, what that sure. means for you? I love adaptation energy. This for me was the like gigantic aha moment. And I have a video of, of me talking about adaptation energy on my website. And, and there are people who are like, oh, you know, it's just, it, it's that aha moment thing. So the concept is we all have a bank account of patients called adaptation energy. The things that give us more of it are restful sleep, which is not just regular, you know, if, if your sleep is not disordered, um, eating well, exercise. And I wouldn't say running a marathon would give you more adaptation energy, but, <laughs> but taking care of yourself, getting massages, going to the spa. If you like working on cars or knitting or gardening or any of those things, whatever you find cuddling with your dog, those are all going to give you adaptation energy and things that are going to deplete your adaptation energy are, um, the uh, annoying little nuisances that happen all day, every day. Uh, Starbucks is out of your favorite vegan muffin. Um, you oversleep your alarm clock. This is, you know, first world problem, facetious kind of, but, but these are the things that, that drive us crazy. Your, your colleagues, you know, you get a nasty email from your boss or your, 
your spouse give, gives you a funny look and you immediately think it's something about you and they were just trying not to burp or whatever, you know, like all these things that happen throughout the day, those wear away at our adaptation energy. And yeah. also uh, previous stresses that we've experienced in our life all leave a, a bit of a, a stress memory or a stress scar, kind of like PTSD, but most of those are much less severe. Right. Yep. That. But if you think about like, um, I, uh, you hear a song on the radio that reminds you of a breakup, uh, and you have, you, you start, your heart starts to pound and you get teary eyed and you need to change the station right away. The person next to you is like, what are you doing? That's the best song. And you're like, no, it's the worst. Same song, but it's evoking an emotional memory in you that might be years old. So mm-hmm. we carry those with us as well. Being re-exposed to those or components of those also will drain our adaptation energy. So we all kind of wake up in the morning with a certain amount of it. And then at some point, uh, like we all have this set point below which if we get to that point, we have a, a fight or flight reaction. So the, the whole concept of it is that there's no such thing as an inherently stressful situation other than actually something life-threatening, a bear attacking you or you getting held up at gunpoint. That's inherently stressful. Yes. But other than that, nothing is inherently stressful. It's whether or not it sets off the fight or flight reaction in your body. Um, and if you have enough adaptation en- energy, theoretically, in, in actuality, you can handle anything um, without having the fight or flight reaction as long as you have enough adaptation energy. So you wake up, let's say that the level is 25 and, and, and let's say your, your set point is 10 and that below 10, you're going to snap. All these little things happen. And let's say the thing that makes you snap is you get a colleague, uh, an email from your colleague saying they can't come in and, you know, can you see all their patients today or they won't be able to help you with the presentation? What happens? Snap. Send off nasty emails. You're sending texts. You're talking shit. Can I say bad words? You can I swear. Yeah, it's all good. You will not be the first one to swear, including me on the podcast. <laughs> that's, that's part of my humanity is I still swear. I tried to cut it out one time and I was like, that's boring and I can't do it. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you start talking smack about that person to your boss and then you like eat three Snickers bars while you're mad about it and you order a bunch of stuff online. Um, the and then you go oh, snap at your patient. Yeah, exactly. You're yelling at people. You're and then crazy. your your HCAP scores go down because you're nasty. <laughs> about H cabs exactly <laughs> so so then like 45 minutes later you calm down and you're like oh god oh dear god what have I done but if you had gotten that email first thing in the morning the same email that sent you into a tizzy when after all these other annoying things had happened it would have brought your adaptation energy level down from a 25 to a 22 but you still had plenty to spare so it's not that email that's inherently stressful it's do you have the resilience and the reserves to deal with it so the meditation um, in, in two different ways, it, it helps to stockpile adaptation energy that in my mind, that's kind of like the goal of it. If you're going to break it down very conceptually and beyond spirituality, beyond any of that stuff, I teach a lot of people. And, and I, as I was myself, I teach a lot of sort of skeptical type high achieving people that aren't looking to be spiritual. They're looking to be happier, um, and less reactive. So basically because the meditation is two to five times more restful than sleep, right away you wake up in the morning and poof, you have this meditation that's extremely restful. So that's going to give you a lot more adaptation energy. So it's going to take you a lot longer to get it down to that 10 level that, mm-hmm. that, that sets you off. But then also what the technique does that I love is that it actually, it reverses the damage done that we've accumulated in our bodies over our lifetime 
from stress. Um, that song that that uh, makes you cry, or a smell that reminds you of your grandmother's kitchen, or or um, you know, every time you've had a stress reaction, you carry little components of, mm-hmm. of stress uh, memory with you. It actually releases those as you're meditating, and we don't set intentions to do that. It's not. It's not. It doesn't happen that way. You just close your eyes to meditate. Do the technique, and as you're meditating, these stresses get released. And this, to me, was a kind of far out concept when I was taking the course, but it's legit. It's it's the crazy. The neuroscience backs it up too, which is really yeah, fascinating. Yeah, totally. So these stresses yeah. are stored in your cellular memory, and this actually releases that. So that is also you're you're also not draining your adaptation energy level as quickly because you don't have as many stresses stored in your body that you. Every time you meditate, you're getting rid of some of them and getting rid of some of them. So you end up in the bank account analogy, not only are are putting more adaptation energy in the bank account by meditating, but you're also not making as many withdrawals because you don't have as many of those old stresses in your system weighing you down and making you distracted and unhappy and reactive and having stress reactions all the time. So that's the concept of it. And I love that this technique, it's not just, you know, waterfalls and rainbows and and relaxing while you're doing it it's like going in there and getting rid of this nasty stuff that's either inside of you making you sick or it's going to come out when you're meditating and it's i think incredible yeah yeah so some of the language that um one of my teachers in the centering prayer tradition talks about that well in the in the psychology and in the neuroscience those implicit memories as they're sometimes called are stored in non-conscious awareness parts of our body and memory. Um, So we don't know they're there. And what I find really interesting is that they can be triggered by those random events, but because they're not directly conscious, we don't always know we're being set off. Yeah. And they happen very quick. Uh And so what I have also experienced something very similar to what you're talking about, which is with regular practice, the language that, one of my teachers, Thomas Keating, talks a lot about is the the unloading and the evacuation of the unconscious mind. So things bubble up when you are in your practice, uh-huh. and we don't necessarily know or even need to know on a conscious, rational level where they're coming from. Totally. But because we're in that state of deep rest, and we are no longer reacting, they're able to escape and be released. And that is part of the process of healing. Um, and becoming more integrated and more whole. That's exactly it. I'm so excited right now because you're, I love that that this is a a Christian contemplative practice and you're telling me, I just, you know, I had students leave here an hour ago. I teach out of my home. I have a studio. um, And I just finished telling them like basically the exact same thing. And and one of the (laughs) things I love, and I'm kind of going off topic here is, you know, I started out, I was raised Jewish. Um, I was always sort of like looking for God, but never found God. I was like, maybe at my bat mitzvah, I'm going to have an experience of God. Maybe when I go to Israel, I'm going to feel, and I never felt it. And I was also, I grew up going in, in the South, going to a very like elite private school that was also a Christian school. And so I had a lot of emotional baggage. Um, well, uh, Westminster was my high school. Oh, high school. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I I think it's Methodist, but they're. I was at med school there and there was like no, yeah. <laughs> at this point it's, it's completely secular, but yeah. my high school was not. And it was very much, it was not Catholic. It was Protestant. 
and it had a lot of wonderful things about it, but it, it, it also was extremely difficult to be like one of, you know, six Jewish people or whatever in my class. Um, and so I had a lot of chips on my shoulder about, about religion, um, and, and, and probably in particular Christianity because of some of the things I had been exposed to. And then as I've been meditating, I have found that I've had these experiences that I'm like, Oh, like, you know, just far out stuff that I never would have thought could have existed before. Now I'm like, I get it. This is religious experience. This is the same. It's the same for everybody. It's just in a different lens. Right. Some people it's their, you know, their born again moment. Some people it's this, it's enlightenment or whatever, but it's the same. It's just, how was your brain conditioned to receive it? Right. Um, and so I've gotten so much more tolerant and, and tolerance, such a crappy word anyway, so much more like appreciative and, and curious about other religions. I think when any religion starts to be used as a weapon, that's, that's the problem. But at their core, there's so, so many similarities and they're quite beautiful at, in their actual core, you know? Right. Yes. Um, and so I love that you're, what you're telling me. Because I probably, if you had told me like Christian contemplative prayer nine years ago, I would have rolled my eyes. And it I would have triggered some implicit memories stored exactly. at the cellular level. <laughs> I love it. And now I'm like, oh yeah, listen to what he's talking about. This is yeah. great. So that's one of the things I love about this practice is it, 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 it teaches you that like this sense of other and this sense of, 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 of fear of things that are different from you. It's just a construct of the ego. And, um, we're, you know, we're all humans. We all like, you know, eat pizza and brush our teeth. And, and, uh, I just seeing really quick here, it said my internet connection was unstable, but I think, Oh, well, I didn't lose you. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just very interesting. And, and it's really easy to get caught up in that world of like, they are bad. I am good. Um, even when you're like everything inside you is screaming that you're right. Um, we're all still having a human experience. So, um, well, and one of the ways that I think, uh, among the people that I hang out with and, and learn from is, uh, the, the language that I think a lot of us are talking about now is a kind of non-dual experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you might in, in say theological, probably Jews, Christians, and Muslims would all talk about this in terms of communion with God or union with God. Um, you might talk about it in terms of settling into contact with pure consciousness but that um it does break you out of that dualistic way of thinking of us versus them of right versus wrong but instead just being present and being open to the experience in front of you amen yeah i love it i love it <laughs> and it's my my um my boyfriend's dad is actually uh he was a catholic priest and oh. then very like early on in his pre obviously like he's my boyfriend's dad so that didn't last long the whole priest thing well you never know but yeah right, right, right. <laughs> he he you know i think early on knew it wasn't right for him and then was um visiting a, a friend who was also a priest in new york and uh met a woman and was like that's the woman for me and they ended up getting married and uh you know they're about to have their 50th anniversary but his whole jam, he, he became an editor and he's still Catholic and, and loves religion, but he's, he's seeking the experience of God in the everyday. And so right. it's really fun talking to him because our experiences are so different, 
our backgrounds are so different, but it's the same thing, this non-duality. It's you can relate at that level. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. So um I take it you find that people that come and do your teaching or that they come from a lot of different traditions or no tradition. Um I, is that a fair assumption? <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the things I used to say, I used to give these introductory talks, which is part of the the TM and the Vedic meditation traditions. You give this free intro talk and people come. <clears throat> it's kind of like your sales pitch. And then people decide if they want to sign up and you give them a sign up sheet. And it, I, I just never really got comfortable in that format. And so the way I usually talk to people is they, they submit a thing on my website and I have a phone call with them and it's much less formal. But in my spiel, uh, I did, I used to say something that my, that my teacher would often say is like, you know, you don't have to wear white pants to be a meditator. You don't have to be vegetarian to be a meditator. Um, you don't have to, um, you know, any of these things that we tend to think of, you don't have to have, you don't have to be Hindu. You don't have to believe in God. You don't have to change your spiritual beliefs or have any at all to be a meditator. You just yeah. close your eyes and do the technique. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've had to, you know, devout and, and less devout Jews, Christians, Muslims, Hindus, and atheists take my class. And, and there's no, there's no difference in how they do with the technique. I did have a really cool experience. Um, one of my, one of my projects that I, that I do, or I guess a, one of my, not a side business, it's, but it's called transformed and it's this mastery retreat for women physicians. I do. I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. Um, a colleague of mine, um, who's really, really great, uh, a, a really great, like motivational speaker. She's a physician, um, but does a lot of social media and branding for physicians. And she's one of my good friends from med school. And so we decided we wanted to create this experience for women physicians to help them really like tune into their values and then like tap into that. And, and either if they want to do a side gig or they want to leave medicine or they want to get more, stay in medicine, but do more research or stay in medicine and get promoted more quickly, whatever it is that they want, help them to know what their real values are. And then, um, and then give them actual tangible tools to to do that, how to communicate, how to, how to get your name out there on social media. And I, I teach my meditation course on the retreat. And of course it's in Mexico and it's amazing. And so I'm teaching this group of 21 women doctors from all different backgrounds um, and a very uh, uh, racially diverse group as well, which made us so happy. We, we very consciously cultivated that because we didn't want it to be a bunch of like white doctors sitting around. Um, and one of the women and some of them came from archery and some of them came for me or the meditation component. And some sure. of them didn't know or just signed up or whatever. And one of the women said, you know, I'm super devout Christian. Um, some of them were uncomfortable. Some of the women on their tree, cause you kind of get this random smattering. I didn't give my whole intro talk to them before they signed up. Um, and you know, I'd done my best to prepare them, but they were still like, what? There's a ceremony <laughs> you do on the first day of class and you're singing in Sanskrit and there's a mantra. And then one of the women said, like, I think the third part of on the third day of the course, she said, you know, I was thinking my mantra uh, and I decided, I, you know, I was just feeling really uncomfortable with it. And I didn't know if God would want me to be meditating. So I started, instead of my mantra, I said, come Lord, come Lord, come Lord. And she said, and the Lord brought me back to my mantra. And I was like, that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard in my life because I don't, <laughs> I don't know how to speak from that perspective because that's not my own background. 
but what a beautiful thing that she was able to assimilate that and, 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 and that helped her find comfort and, and clarity in that moment. And then she was all in. Okay. I, I don't know if you saw my face when you said that <laughs> I just got an, I just had a Holy shit moment. Um, so there's absolutely no way that I think you would know this when we were talking before. And I said, there's sort of two main sort of organizations that teach the Christian contemplative practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one that I'm engaged with is called contemplative outreach. The other one is called the world community for Christian meditation. None of that really matters, but what does matter is <laughs> the world community teaches a mantra based form. The word is Maranatha. Mm-hmm. You know what that means? Come Lord. Come Lord. Wow. I wonder <laughs> if that was just like, <laughs> I don't know, but when you said that, I just about fell off my chair. That's so interesting. Yeah. And yeah. The Lord was like, it's cool. Meditate. It's going to make you happy. You know, I'm I'm here. I love you anyway. Right. And, and that's what I love is that like, it works for everybody, no matter what. I did have one woman who, who said she changed her mantra because she Googled it and it means something and it doesn't, but uh, yeah. like, that's you, you. you know, if that becomes your stumbling block, then don't be attached to that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, hopefully it works as well because what she came up with, I'm sure is not a major mantra because she doesn't know what they are, but, but I think she still really enjoyed the technique. And so it's great. So I've had, I mean, I've had some serious, serious, like, like arms crossed glares, um, like usually the start of the second session. And then I, the second part of my course is all about teaching the technique, the nuts, like the nitty gritty. What if you fall asleep? Yeah. How do you deal with thoughts? What if you get interrupted? Um, what if your mantra changes? All these things. And by the end of that, they know how to meditate. And then we do a meditation. That's when all the eyes light up and they open their eyes and the body language changes. And they're just like, if they didn't, because it's interesting when I do it for these medical groups, these people didn't necessarily seek me out and have a one-on-one conversation with me and say, I want to do this technique and ping me directly. A lot of it is kind of through the medical um, organization or, you know, signing up for the retreat. And so that's a very different vibe than people who come to my studio and and come and learn with me more in a, in a smaller group setting. So um, anyway, so you can just feel the whole energy in their shift. Once they actually get the meditation, they know how to do it. And then they see what it's all about. And then they are like, I don't care about the ceremony. I don't care what word I'm using this is just incredible. And this is what I, I never knew meditation could be this way. So yeah. it's, it's very interesting. Yeah. Okay. I want to go to that skeptic piece of yourself, but then also as you teach and work with physicians. So what, and you mentioned kind of being about the science as well, and maybe the neuroscience or the chemistry. So for you, what was that? What, what took you was it a was it a more of a subjective experience that you had during the practice? Was it learning more about the science? Maybe it was a combination of both. But what sort of melted that skepticism for you? I mean, I I think what melted it was when I heard my teacher talk about adaptation energy and stress and how we're always about to lose it. And I was like, that is me. You were describing me in a way that I'm all fancy doctor pants and I don't even know that it's, it's theoretically science that I know, but it was never contextualized that in, in that way for me. And it, it helped me know myself more than I ever had 
in what he mm-hmm. was saying. And so that, yeah. that's what melted it away for me. And once I started meditating, I mean, he did a, there's a ceremony on the first day of class. It's Sanskrit. There's like fruit and flowers and incense and all that stuff. I was just like mostly like amused by it or curious. It wasn't, I wasn't exactly comfortable, but that's okay. Being uncomfortable is, is a good thing. As long as you're not being like forced to do something against your will, but, but, but sure. being, being uncomfortable is, is part of a learning process. But, um, but, but on the first or second day of class when I was meditating, so I wasn't skeptical necessarily, like I was already all in. But what made me realize like, oh my God, this is happening is I started, I was meditating and my face flushed. Like I was blushing while I was meditating. And I was like, that's what happens when I get embarrassed or put on the spot or like I'm, you know, trying to, you know, I guess put on the spot would be the best way to describe that. And that happened while I was meditating. And so even though it was a small little thing, I wasn't experiencing God or anything like that, that was different. Hmm. And I didn't have that experience before and, and the meditation was easy to do and I could fit it into my day with my pager and not feel like I was beating my head against the wall. All of those things combined. That's when I was like, I am on something big time and I don't know how I found it or how it found me. I don't know how I didn't know about it before. Like how many years of my life have I been wasting being like skeptical about this, but thank, thank somebody (laughs) for that I was able to find this. Um, so, so I think it was mostly before I learned, but then the immediacy of the results and the immediacy of the actual experiences while you're meditating. I think that is another thing about this, this practice that there's not like a learning curve the way that there is in a lot of other types of meditation. And so people can do 20 minutes twice a day right off the bat. Yeah. And, and, and so it's very, um, it, it boosts people's confidence because it's more of a, a, a very carrot rather than stick approach. Yeah. Yeah. Getting nuggets and you just, the more you meditate, the more nuggets you get. Yeah. I always talk about it in terms of this isn't something you're adding to your to-do list. Yeah. It's, and I like your, your language around adaptation energy because the to-do list is sucking that energy often. Yeah. Um, but the practice, the setting aside of that time, is rejuvenating and getting in touch with something deeper. So something I struggle with is I also pretty firmly believe that 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 20 minutes twice a day is is essential to really establishing on a lot of levels. You can talk about it spiritually, you can talk about it neurologically, um, but really becoming established in that that base point. So um, how do you deal with, you know, you're, you're, you're doing this with physicians, right? And there's no group of people right now professionally who are under more pressure. There's a, there's a mental health crisis among physicians. Right. The pressures on them for productivity and seeing patients and electronic health records and lack of uh, efficacy around decision making within their institutions. I mean, they are the push to the brink. So when you walk in, and I'm doing this too, though I haven't quite done it yet, but I will be soon of like, okay, you know, 20 minutes twice a day. And looking for little moments to refill the bucket or or pause to recenter oneself throughout the day. How do you address that? Like you're telling me to add another thing to my day. Yeah, um, I I usually tell people no one thinks it's possible until they do it. Twenty minutes twice a day sounds absolutely impossible. Part of my job is to teach you how to fit it into your day. So let me be the expert with this and let me teach you how to do that. 
Um, cause right now it's not really comprehensible. Um, right. so I, I, I tell them that. And, and also the thing that I tell them, and there's this great Gandhi quote that you may have heard, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's, I'm too busy to meditate today. So I'm going to meditate for two hours instead of one hour. Um, and I say, don't worry, I'm not going to make you meditate for even one hour. But the fact is the meditation makes you more efficient. Um, it's a high performance tool. There's another whole concept of the benefits in addition to stress reduction, in addition to health benefits, and in addition to any spiritual stuff, there's a whole high performance aspect to it um, that allows you to be a more creative, you know, more creative and a better problem solver and better interpersonal skills and more efficient. I mean, I got to a point in my job where I, I was like so ridiculously productive doing my academic stuff. I was, I think a lot of people hear, oh, she teaches meditation because she had burnout and she couldn't hack it. And that's why she, and they write me off because they're like, well, if you, if you left medicine, who were you? And I'm like, no, I had a super successful career for three years after I learned to meditate. Um, My interest started going elsewhere, but I didn't, I didn't leave medicine because I couldn't, couldn't do it or didn't want to do it anymore. I just wanted to do other things more. But um, so it really, you spend less time stressing about being stressed and stressing about being busy and you spend less energy resisting change. I just put out a video um, today about resisting change and, and, and this need we have to cling to the status quo and, and mm. how like aware because that's the least safe place to be. Um, so so that's the other thing that I really focus on is, is that it makes you more efficient and that you enjoy it because the technique feels so good and you're getting the benefits from it so quickly that it's something that you look forward to rather than something that you're another thing you have to add. And, and another thing importantly is I don't teach people who don't want to learn. So right. the workplace programs that I've done have all been voluntary signups um, and not for people who are going to come at me with venom because that's not my, they're not ready. And that's yeah. cool. They don't have to be ready, um, but I, I, I don't want to participate in a forced program. And A, you can't make anyone come six hours, you know, it's, it's four days in a row, about 90 minutes a day. No one's going to show up for that. But if there's just enough of a crack where they're just miserable enough, how I was, mm-hmm. um, and then they get the benefit, they're, start, they're like good at it on day two, that really has a, a good effect too. So there's a lot of things that I do to, to help reassure them. Um, and they'll do great with it. And then what will happen is they'll get complacent or, or they, the, the stress mode kicks in again, the ego voice. It's like, you're too busy. You're too busy. You're too busy. And then they'll blame the meditation. So that's, that's always, and that's a challenge for anybody, not just doctors. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So what about the science side of, of that? So you've talked a lot about the subjective experience and I, I actually think you have to have some kind of subjective experience to want to keep you coming back. But have you, I know you've done a little bit of publishing. Have you done any of your own studies or just of what you've read? Because I could imagine when you're presenting to physicians, you're going to want to give them some data because, right, they're very data driven and trained in that way. Um, So are there, what are some of the highlights of what you talk about? So me and my relationship to data, data is a little bit, is a little bit complicated in that like in my career as a doctor, I felt like I never read enough. I was never reading enough of the journal articles and whatever else. That's and imposter I, syndrome. Nobody can yeah, read enough. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But I like really wasn't <laughs> like, yeah, but I was, but <laughs> I'm not, I don't, when I go speak to groups, 
I'm not giving a grand rounds. I'm not like presenting all the most up-to-date meditation data and proving to people that it's important. I think at this point, most doctors, in my experience, they understand that meditation has been proven to be beneficial. My experience is that they are still like, yeah, yeah, but that's for other people. Yeah. And so I feel like my job, when I talk to doctors, I present a couple studies from the TM organization. They did one, there's one on burnout and you and I spoke about this before, or we emailed about it. There's one on burnout. Um, There's no, it's, this technique hasn't been taught, uh, studied with doctors specifically about burnout. Um, But they've done other burnout studies and there's great health benefits that they've studied. And all, of course, all these studies you have to take with a grain of salt because meditation is such a a subjective thing. And if the organization teaching the meditation is running the study. Right. Well, that's always, especially in the TM world, that's a big criticism. And I think a fair one, but, but I, I do think there, there is, there are good, well-designed objective studies out there that, that I think are, you know, at least worth mentioning. Yeah. And so, so I think doctors know that they've heard that enough. And my job is to get them to keep them from shutting down when they start to hear about meditation. My job is I'm, I'm the, I'm the case study. I'm like, I was just like you. I cried. I was skeptical. Here's what it's done for me. Here's why I think it can help you. Here's a little bit of data, but I'm not going to focus on that because it's experiential. Yeah. This class and you'll experience it right away. And it's going to change how you are in the world and how you approach your work. That's, that's what I'm teaching people. And so, you know, I, my, my old boss was like, Oh, I want you to come to a grand rounds. He he moved up to hospital in New York. And I'm like, I have zero charm to sit, to spend like 40 hours of my life, like sifting through meditation data to present a talk about burnout. I want to teach you how to meditate. I want to make you. So that's, that's like, it's like my, my, my weakness or my blind spot, but it's, I think my strength is that it's, I, I don't, I don't, so I don't focus as much on that. Ow, I just banged my elbow. Um, <laughs> don't but, focus on that either. Oh no, I won't. I'm just, <laughs> you know. um, but I did do a study um, with a group of hospitalists at Emory. It was a, a pilot study. It's like theoretically still going on, but I think it's gotten lost in the wind. But basically, um, I taught 13 hospitalists at Emory St. Joe's Hospital, my course. The department paid for it. Uh, they had a really great grant for stuff like that. They took a survey um, after the course was over, like one that we just wrote, mm-hmm. experience in the course. And then they also did this Stanford physician burnout questionnaire mm-hmm. before and after. And there were only 13 people. It was designed to just be a feasibility study because the, the statistical power isn't enough with just 13 people. Right. But um, so we've been waiting and waiting and like the, the, this is just like gotten dropped in the ether. The, the, the woman who was a hospitalist who was helping me coordinate it. She's incredible. I love her to death. She has left Emory and gone to another job. So everything she's doing is like out of her own pure goodwill. And I, you know, would give her a kidney. I love her so much, but it, that she's not there every day to kind of poke at this person. And I think this other woman who's doing the statistics has probably 80 billion other studies that she's doing high up people putting a lot of pressure on her. So we don't have the Stanford burnout data, but I don't think it matters because it's not going to show us anything anyway, but the data of the the surveys, um, I don't have that in front of me. Um, I just sort of talked to her recently and I said, you know what, can I just put out 
the data that we've gotten from the survey. Or even the subjective responses, exactly. the written responses. Yeah. yeah. Like we just put that out and she said, absolutely. But it was pretty incredible. I mean, they all felt comfortable, you know, fours and fives out of five in terms of for all of it, feeling comfortable with the meditation practice, being glad that they learned it, feeling like it helped them. Um, and I don't have all the specific data, so I don't want to misquote any of it, but, but very, I think they felt supported that their administration gave them that opportunity. And I think they enjoyed the practice and got a lot of benefits from it. Um, and would, would like, you know, wanted to continue doing it. Um, from that perspective, maybe that's all that's needed. You know, it's, it, the burnout scale is supposed to be validated for doctors and it's supposed to be validated for this three month period. So it it is supposed to detect something, but until I don't know what the the sample size needed to be, but it needed to be much bigger. So, you know, in my mind, I'm like, let's get this party started. Like I want to, you know, they have the funding to teach more of their doctors, but it's, I've, I've done everything I can for my end. And I've just like, like to listen to cues from the universe and the universe is like, this is not the time to spend any energy on that. Focus elsewhere. And, doing the research is, you know, it's, it was very like sort of soft clinical research. Anyway, we weren't measuring sure waves or, or lactic acid levels or, or cortisol levels or anything like that, but the group, they were amazing and they all did incredible with it. Some of them, um, I think were a little bit more skeptical, skeptical about it at first. And they all, by the end of it, were like, Oh my God, this is so awesome. So I can tell when someone gets it and when someone doesn't get it based on what the experiences are that they're telling me about in their meditations. Uh, that's part of the instruction is I'm, they do a home practice and then we kind of troubleshoot it. So they did great. So that's kind of all I need to know. Yeah. And, um, they were amazing and it was so much fun teaching them. It was a dream. It was the fact that I was getting to do that was like, holy crap. I can't believe that I'm in this position where this is, this has worked out. So whether or not we get, you know, hardcore data, it was a beautiful experience. And I think it for, for me, but more, more importantly for them, I think, and they have the skill and I'm their teacher for life. So even if they aren't meditating regularly, they know that they can, and they know the technique and they know their mantra and they can pick up whenever they want. And they also are like, Oh, it just, maybe that was the, the, the thing that like lights the, lights the um, fire for them. Sure. In terms of other, other options out there. Um, yeah. No. And I, I hear a lot of stories from people that where a seed is planted at one time, but it's years later that it starts to really take root and flower into something else. So yeah. you never know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, I think overall it was very successful. It just like data wise. You know. <laughs> yeah. No, I was just curious. Yeah. 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 So I want to, what, I know you said 20 minutes twice a day, but I want to get even maybe more practical or detailed. Like what, what does your practice look like? Do you do it right away when you wake up in the morning? When do you do a second sit? Cause that might help people think through who might be considering taking that on for themselves. Sure. Um, so first thing in the morning, um, before food or drink or coffee. Um, and I always tell people my, my routine is I wake up, I go to the bathroom, I brush my teeth. I like to splash cold water on my face. It, it's very rejuvenating. I just tell people, get the cloud of sleep off you. You don't want to like hit your alarm clock and then sit up. Right. right so like get out of bed. <laughs> get out of bed, but then get right back in bed once you've, you know, emptied your bladder and, and uh, washed your face. Um, I tell people who are coffee addicts, like go by all means, drink all the coffee you want. Just do it after the meditation. 
um, because it's caffeine, which is a stimulant, and it's going to make it much harder to de-excite your physiology, which is the whole purpose. So I say, wake up, go to the bathroom, wash your face, hit, you know, turn on the coffee maker and hit start, and then go meditate. So it's there for you when you wake up. And I think for most people, they're like, I'm just like, think about how many times you hit snooze every morning. Think about how much time you spend with your face and your phone looking at social media every morning. The time is there. It's absolutely there. So that's the first one. And then you go about your day. And then the second meditation is sometime mid to late afternoon, early evening, before after lunch is digested, before you're super hungry for dinner. So you ideally don't want to be digesting a heavy meal while you're mm-hmm. meditating because that also tends to keep your you more towards surface level thoughts and, and more activated. So, um, and I'd say, you know, that can be anywhere depending on the person, anywhere from two until seven thirty at night. And it can be later for people who go to bed super late. It can be earlier for people who go to bed super early and have a block of time. But, um, but you don't want to do it like an hour and a half before you go to sleep because it's two to five times more restful than sleep. So you're not going to take a nap. And you're going to be awake. Yeah. So, so yeah. that's the constraint is the eating and the sleeping and, and the caffeine. And all the, I always tell them, these are just like guidelines. Sure. We're going to choose between like not meditating and meditating on a full stomach. Always meditate on a full stomach. Sure. Always meditate if you have caffeine in your system. You'll learn. It's okay. If you want to meditate after you've had a couple beers, see how that feels. And if that feels okay, and that's the thing that gets you meditating on a Sunday afternoon <laughs> while you're like watching the football game, so be it. You're still getting benefits from it. So that's the practice. And and a lot of my docs will do it like um, in their cars before they go home mm-hmm. or in their office at the end of the day um, because a lot of times when people get home, there's little beings or big beings that depend on them and, and want them to be on and, and, yep. and so I encourage them to do it. I, I tell my students to be scrappy about it. So like grab the meditation when you can, if you're waiting in line at carpool, um, you're in a coffee shop, you have, you know, a 15 minute break between patients. Yes. Ideally 20 minutes twice a day, but you can, you can truncate that a little bit if you have to. Um, but grab the time when you can. And if the only time you have is from one o'clock to one twenty that afternoon, then that's when you're going to do your meditation. Yeah. Um, and people do pretty well with it. It's just a matter of prioritizing it. You have to commit. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. I, um, I never quite put this together before, but I like what you said about hitting the snooze button. Cause I, I do the same thing. I wake up, use the bathroom and then, um, I have a little spot that I go on one of our couches and what's interesting is that it's continuing rest from sleep, but it's a different state of consciousness than than just sleep. But it actually, I never put this together before, but rather than just hitting snooze three times, I'm actually probably getting more rest by getting up and doing my practice than if I sat there hitting snooze, even though it feels like in the moment that snooze is more rest. Right. But that makes I so that's like the foundation for me. And then for me, I think I mentioned this to you before, because I have this regional position and I travel around within the city, my days never look the same. And so I can't count on the same time. So I actually I will actually look at my schedule and and plan out when I'm going to be able to do that second practice. And I've recently recommitted to that second practice, that second sit, because for a while I just wasn't as diligent about it. And, uh, I went on a retreat and was kind of reminded of like 
how important that is. And it really makes a radical difference. It's such a huge um, difference. Yeah. It's better than nothing. But it's that second one that really, really revitalizes you. Um, you know, for me, when I hit snooze, I could hit snooze for six hours. And yeah. Really rested. Um, so I'm getting, I tell people, I'm like, you're not getting out of bed to do squats and lunges and burpees. You're getting out of bed so you can get back in bed and do something that you're much more aware of the benefits that it's having. And the benefits go well beyond 20 minutes of sleep. There's so much more happening inside. So you're, you're making better use of that time. So, um, I'm glad that I'm glad that resonated with you. Um, and I I stopped hitting snooze for like a year and I'm sort of back into it again, but luckily I have a, you know, I, I always know when I have enough, I'm not like, I don't miss meditation. So that's, that's, that's never, I've been like <laughs> type a meditator ever. So like I'll hit snooze, but I always am going to have enough time to meditate that, that always yeah. factors. And I tell my students, we sit in silence for two minutes at the end of our meditation. It's like our Shavasana kind of to help the mm-hmm. effects integrate. And I say, always use those two minutes to plan your next meditation. So kind of like how you do that. Mm. They do mental inventory of their day to know when that next meditation is going to be because if you don't do that you have to be intentional about it if you don't do it it's gonna the day's gonna pass you by that's smart i hadn't i might i might steal that one from you yeah yeah (laughs) so you've talked a lot about and obviously you focus on the benefits what would you say is sort of the ultimate purpose if there even is one to the practice? That's a great question. No one's ever asked me that. Um, depends on who my audience is. Yeah, okay, so me. <laughs> so I'm talking to doctors, it's the ultimate purpose is to maximize parasympathetic activity so that you can maximize rest and tap into the healing powers of your own body and live a better life. So the ultimate purpose, and, and then I will also just say the ultimate purpose is to live a better life. Um, mm-hmm. That would be to any audience. Um, I don't know. Did I just evade the question? Did I, did I, I, don't did know. I answer that satisfactorily? <laughs> I, for me, the spiritual side of it has been, and I don't really like go too much in the, in the beginning course. Um, some of my colleagues do, you know, who teach Vedic get way more into it. I just, I find that the people that I tend to attract are like, completely like zone out when I talk about that. Yeah. Um, they're going to get to it. They're going to get to it. And if they have questions, they'll ask me. But for me, it has completely shifted the way I see the world. And it has made the world this like really interesting, like quirky, vibrant, live place to like the concept of the universe. I never really understood. And it still blows me away and still brings tears to my eyes when synchronicity happens and I'm just, or when I notice it, it's happening all the time. I'm just not always noticing it. Um, so that for me has been the biggest thing is like just this worldview beyond the, I call it my Jill bubble going outside the Jill bubble and like actually being able to like see the world from other people's perspective and, 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 and lean into fear. And when I'm afraid of something move in that direction rather than running away from it. And that's where the rewarding part of life is for me. Um, so I might have answered your question. Well, and that's where those <laughs> leaning into that fear, surrendering into that fear is where the, the growth and the excitement happens. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And the unexpected. I used to limit myself a lot. And so people are like, how did you, 
leave medicine. To, and I'm like, well, it wasn't some gigantic, huge decision. It was just a bunch of small decisions that felt right. And being exposed to certain people who, who set examples for me. And then all of a sudden I'm teaching meditation and <laughs> back in Atlanta, you know, it, <laughs> it felt all very normal in the moment. It just was what I did. So wow. as med cool. school felt like, I remember thinking like, Oh my God, med school residents. They're so amazing. And I still think about that now. If I'm at the hospital for like a family member is sick or something. And then I see residents in the hallway, I'm like, Oh, they're so smart. They're so, you know, I did that, but to me, it was my everyday and it didn't feel all that different um, or all that special or amazing. But from the outside, things just tend to look different than when you're yeah. living it minute to minute. Yeah. You just kind of survive through the grad school experience. Um, mine, yeah. PhD is different than med school, but it is still similar, like insane levels of focus and sleep deprivation that <laughs> to get through. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so I have a couple of like Rorschach block questions, fill in the blank, rapid fire that I like to ask people. I love this stuff. This is great. Yeah, good. Okay, so I'm glad you're game. All right, so um, how would you fill in? So I often will use the word contemplation, but I think you talk more about meditation. So meditation is, how would you answer that sentence or fill it in? Uh, life changing. So the purpose of contemplation or meditation is all about. Um, I'm supposed to answer this quickly. Um, it's okay. The purpose of meditation or contemplation is um, getting in touch with, tap, tapping into the, the power that you carry inside you. Hmm. Is there a word or a phrase that captures the heart of your meditation experience? Surrender. Okay. If you had to pick a hope for the current generation of meditation practitioners, what would it be? If I had a hope for them? Mm-hmm. Um, or your students? Consistency. Hmm. Got really like <laughs> ground level. <laughs> no, I, th that's why they're these. That's why I said it's Rorschach block. It's like <laughs> fill in the blank. I just um, want them to do it. Just do it and and be effortless and do it. And then that's awesome. Yeah. And then, do you? What is a hope that you have for meditation in medicine specifically? All right, I want doctors to be able to take some of the pressure off of themselves to have all the answers. And I want that mm. pressure to be taken off of doctors by other people and to, for everybody to realize that there's more answers than, uh, than Western medicine. There's more questions uh, that Western medicine doesn't provide all the answers. That's a better way of saying it. And it doesn't have to, and it shouldn't have to. Mm. And I think that for me, at least was a huge component of my burnout was this pressure to know everything and be everything and to be skeptical of everything. And yes, of course, science is science, but there's so much more out there. And if we can use all those things together and be open minded towards it, then we get to heal people. We get to go back to that model and, uh, you know, people 
there's a whole world of doctor haters out there that growing up as a doctor, you're led to believe that doctors are godlike, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and you, you miss out on this hearing the message from other people. I love how you talked about that in terms of that you use the word healing, but you talked about it as something like Western medicine can do more than anything else we've discovered. It's like the technology is incredible. And at the same time, that is not the whole of health. And so I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what I hear in that and how I think about it in my own practice or working with, with physicians or other healthcare providers is that if we can bring that whole perspective of health into the Western practice of medicine, even the scientific practice is going to be better. Yeah. And we're not going to put all the pressure on it to solve all of our problems. Yeah. And, and spend thousands and thousands and tens billions of, thousands of extra money of extra <laughs> dollars on extra CAT scans for people who have stress related health issues, you know, right. uh, on, on pain, you know, addictive pain medicine for people who, um, deal with their stress by their body manifest pain. You know, like there's so many things to me that are stress related or, or exacerbated by stress. I, there, it would be very hard to find something at all that isn't caused by or made worse by stress in the medical community. Like let's, let's shift our approach a little bit. Let's make meditation required at pain clinics, mm. you know? just do that. It's going to make your outcomes better. You might, you know, it's just like, there's a very, it's, it's, I, I just, I, I think changing the culture a little bit and just like lifting up the roof a little bit of that inclusivity, um, that I experienced so much when I was, when I was a doctor, um, doctors are extraordinarily well-trained and I would say, you know, wanting to help people. Um, but somehow that message gets distorted along the way and it's not it's this it's the system but it's incumbent upon individuals to take ownership of of their own experience in the world i think Mm. blaming the system gets you a whole lot of nowhere it's disempowering too yeah it it leads to a lack of efficacy which is one of the three primary (laughs) contributors to burnout uh in the literature so Yeah. yeah when people say the EMR is the cause of my burnout, I'm like, I'm not sure it, it seems that way, but there, there, there's also other things about the EMR that help. And it's this resistance. Yeah. This resisting what is, um, that I think is the cause of a lot of people's burnout. Um, and, and a lot of the pressure, of course, there's so many, and, and it's different for everybody, you know? So, um, what, what, what caused mine is different from what causes other people's. So, um, I can't speak for everybody, but I do know that if, if, if you feel that the EMR is the only thing causing your burnout, like come, come learn to meditate with me or go to learn contemplative Christian prayer with you. Like <laughs> come, come do that and then see how you feel about it. Yeah. But you got to take responsibility. It's like, what, how are you going to survive in the meantime while you're waiting for the system to change? That's, it's not changing. Right. It's not. And in particular, if your desire is to stay in your chosen profession, then. Right. You know. Right. Systems change slowly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, and I, I love, I mean, this is sort of an aside, I guess, but the work that you guys do at, at SSM, 
and your your the amount of of energy and resources you put into this holistic physician wellness model is blowing me away. Like the more I, the more I'm talking with you guys and, and working with you and, and and seeing what it is that you do, I, I kind of don't understand how it's possible. Um, but I don't. Well, if I can brag for a moment, well, two things. First of all, uh, Jen Wessels, the, who's kind of in charge of that, is just phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm still relatively new, actually, to this that position. But I also think that there is a there is that strong um, mission piece to it to invest in our own people. That's sort of driven by the Franciscan sisters that founded the system and that we're now trying to embody and caring for our physicians and our employees is one way to live that out. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. It's great. Yeah. I was like, you know, I do a song, like a, a ceremony and it's Sanskrit and she's like, that's okay. We're not just like hey, yeah. do mass, you know, like it's a yeah. organization, but there's so much more and, and they're so open to that. And that to me speaks volumes as well. Um, yeah. Which I really appreciate. Yeah. Well, me too. I'm glad to hear it from the outside too. (laughs) So where can people find out more about what you're up to or just online or social media? I'll put things in show notes, obviously, but if you want to say it out loud. Sure. So my website is meditationinmedicine.com. I have a couple websites because I've been focusing. That's my like healthcare specific one. Um, I have an online course that I have just put out there. It's called the rest technique, R-E-S-T. So if you Google the rest technique online, you can learn that. And that's really like, if you can't learn from me in person, I've like, it's, it's designed to be comprehensive. It's not designed to be a lead in to work with me in person. It's designed to like teach you to meditate successfully. So that's out there. Um, and then, uh, on Instagram, I'm at Jill Wiener, MD, W E N E R, of course, my last name. And then like, that's, I think that, I have Facebook and Twitter too. Sure. Um, sure. Not as relevant, I feel like, in, in this world. I, I use Facebook all the time, but my actual business Facebook page isn't, I think, as pertinent. So, yeah, yeah. meditationmedicine.com. I'm doing that. And is the REST program, is that the one that you just got um, CME and continuing education credit for? Or is that something different? So, I've been accredited for CME for my live course and for the online course. Okay. So if you learn from me, my conscious health meditation course and uh, four parts in person it's up, uh, six hours of CME um, or CE for nurses and anyone else who claims CE. Um, but the online course is also accredited. So um, you can get that also for six hours. So you can get that either way, which is the super raddest thing. In the hey, world. it's a, it's a bonus, right? And a little, a little extra carrot to dangle out there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it like legitimate legitimizes, meditation in general not just my course but but meditation in general so um so yeah so i'm doing a retreat i don't know when this is going to be aired um my train oh and and transform oh you mean this podcast it'll yeah yeah, it'll take me about a week probably okay so so registration for my retreat ends july 25th um if that is still happening um if that's if that hasn't passed by the time this is released um because we're all in summer mode right now yeah Uh, and so that's on my on my website, and then transform. That's that mastery retreat for women physicians. That um, is that event is in January, and and you can find a link to that on my on my same website. Cool, yeah, and I'll put that. I'll put links to all this in the show notes when people okay. if people want to visit as well. So, cool. 
Awesome. Well, I can't uh, wait to meet you when you come to St. Louis and present at SSM. So to be continued. Yeah. uh, But this has been awesome. And thanks for being on. Appreciate it. Oh, it's been my pleasure. We really, I think we we did a full hour and a half, maybe. We may have come close. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks. And I'm so, I'm so, I love learning more about what you've been, what you've been doing, like job wise and also uh, spiritually and, 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 Again, the way that the two things resonate, even though they're totally different. Backgrounds. I know. I love that resonance when that happens. Yeah, it's cool. Awesome. All right. All right. Well, we'll definitely see you here and maybe we'll end up collaborating on something. That'd be amazing. I'd love that. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. And you can find more information about Dr. Jill Weiner or about the podcast at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode 18. That's the word episode 18 with no spaces. Remember that you'll be seeing a new look on my site very soon and keep your eyes peeled for even more tools to deepen your practice at centeringforwisdom.com, both of which will be rolled out in the next few months. I hope you continue to find inspiration, especially to get in that second sit during your busy days that we talked about in this podcast. In fact, I might suggest try committing or maybe recommitting, as I did recently, to sitting for twice a day for at least 20 to 30 minutes. And just gently notice and pay attention. See if you notice anything shifting subtly in your life. And if you do, please send me a note and tell me about it. Perhaps I can share it with others on my site or on the podcast. We all gain insight and inspiration by sharing our experiences and even our struggles and especially our wins. So until next time, may you be consciously healthy and well. Thanks again.